Hello and thank you for joining us for this edition of Stratfor Talks, a podcast focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratfor.com. I'm Ben Sheen. As we approach the end of 2016, we begin this episode of Stratfor Talks by looking at the future of Europe and what political or economic challenges the continent will face in the year ahead. Then, in part two of the podcast, Stratfor's Riva Goujon and Roger Baker discuss how demographics can be used to determine a nation's economic success, with Japan as an example. Thanks for joining us. Europe, and perhaps more specifically the State of the European Union, has drawn more than its fair share of interest and question marks over the past year. At the beginning of 2016, Stratfor identified European fragmentation as one of the key trends that will shape global developments going forward. From the migration crisis to the Brexit referendum and other developments still ongoing, the question remains as to what the future of Europe will look like. To dive into that conversation, I'd like to welcome Stratfor Senior Europe Analyst Adriano Bossoni and Europe Analyst Mark Fleming-Williams to the Stratfor Talks podcast. Gents, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Let's begin with something that has been overshadowing so many other developments around the world in recent weeks, and that's the election of Donald Trump to be the next president of the United States. I have to ask, how has Mr. Trump's election been received in Europe? Well, it was received with a big shock, I would say. Most people in, in Europe were expecting uh, the other candidate, Mrs. Clinton, to win the election. But since then, we have seen that most European governments are on a wait-and-see mode, just waiting for uh, developments and to formulate a proper reaction to this. We have to keep in mind there is still not a government in place. Mr. Trump will only... Uh, become president in mid-January, and there are there is no certainty about its foreign policy priorities and positions. Many European governments are waiting to see actual policy before reacting to that. Uh, there are a few things that are concerning the, the Europeans. Uh, of course, uh, Central and Eastern European countries are worried about uh, the United States potentially improving its relationship with Russia and with the United States potentially not being as interested in the security situation in the region as previous American governments. But at this point, we have seen uh, governments in countries like Poland and the Baltic states and Romania saying that they still hope that there will be uh, an important NATO and American presence in the region. And if they have to increase military spending just to please the new American administration, they would be willing to do it. The concern in Western Europe is slightly different Big countries like Germany, France, the Netherlands, potentially Italy, will hold general elections next year. And the governments in all those countries are worried that the anti-globalization wave that brought Donald Trump to power could produce a similar effect in Europe. We know that there is a big wave of anti-establishment, anti-globalization sentiments in Europe as well. Brexit is probably the, the most visible example of this. And the governments of moderate mainstream parties are worried about similar repercussions in their countries. Yeah. The, um, just, to, just to add to that, on the eastern side, it's quite interesting um, because... Over the last over the last year or two, we've seen a coming together of the so-called Visegrad group, which is a which is an old alliance, which is which has kind of woken up, um, which is uh, Poland, the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Slovakia. And it's always been, from our perspective, it's it's they have seemed uh, like uncomfortable bedfellows in some ways, um, just because they have different. Uh, when it comes down to it, when you look at the geography, which is which is the classic Stratfor way of looking at things. They have different issues to bear in mind when it comes to Russia. 
Um, and the reason for that is that Hungary definitely and also Czech Republic and Slovakia to, to a large extent are shielded from Russia by the Carpathian Mountains. Whereas Poland is not. Poland's in the middle of the North European plain, which is a classic invasion route. And it means it's much more exposed to Russia um, than, than, than those other ones. So one thing that we're going to watch and w which will be interesting, as Adriana says, there's so much that's up in the air at the moment. and so much so much unknown about, um, you know, the, the, the U.S., Russian relationship, whether that is likely to, to see a huge shift. But from the European perspective and from the from the Polish perspective and the Hungarian perspective, it'll be interesting to see if there's there's a divergence between those countries. If uh, the US as a backing and if NATO starts being less powerful, um, whether whether Poland begins to feel a little bit more insecure um, and that diverges perhaps from 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 somewhere like Hungary, which 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 ha which is shielded to an extent and, and has a bit more safety. The other thing to, to bear in mind, the other side of Europe is um, is Britain, which has obviously just uh, voted uh, to leave Europe, which uh, came as a surprise to, to, to many. That changes the picture for, for Britain. Um, Britain has, has for, for a long time, balanced its relationship between Europe and the United States, between the continent and the United States. Uh, from Britain's perspective, they had been, what we had seen for the previous few years was um, Britain having its relationship with Europe in the bag and feeling that it had its relationship with Europe in the bag, um, extending a hand out more to, to places like China and India and trying to build ties there. Right now, with, with, with Europe, with its relationship with Europe very much uh, in doubt and, and in play um, and under negotiation, it's not surprising that we're seeing the UK administration not joining in in the European crisis talks about, uh, about what to do about Donald Trump. Um, and actually, from the UK's perspective, they are, they're thinking that perhaps the US is, is going to be very important. And, and so it's, you've, got a, you've got a definite hedging going on from the UK's perspective and, and an unwillingness to commit to sending any negative vibes towards, towards the US. So again, there seems to be a lot of this, this wait and see aspect in Europe at the moment. And to look a bit closer at the Brexit referendum, uh, where does that process actually stand at this point? And what do you think we're going to see in, in the, the near and midterm going forward? There was a significant uh, development a couple of weeks ago when a high court in London said that the British Parliament actually has to authorise the government of Prime Minister Theresa May before formal negotiations to leave the European Union begin. Uh, there was some wishful thinking saying that this may actually prevent Brexit from happening. We don't think that's the case. Brexit is going to happen. But the interesting thing is that if, the, if we see a greater participation of the parliament in the process, then the government will not be the only one shaping the negotiation strategy. We will see uh, the parliament trying to have its, its own visions uh, present during the negotiation, which some think it could lead to a more comprehensive agreement with the European Union than Theresa May's team may have had in mind at first. And we also have to keep in mind that even if there is an agreement, uh, the process is going to take probably much longer than the two-year period written in the, in the treaties. And after there is an agreement, the British Parliament will probably have to vote again uh, to approve the final agreement. So the Parliament will be very, very involved in the process. And of course, if we see that the parliaments of the remaining 27 members of the European Union also have to have a, a, a vote, we will see all sorts of negotiations, horse trading, threats. It's going to be definitely a very long process. And I think it will take much longer than the two-year period that people are talking about these days. And it certainly seems like many countries in Europe possibly are uh 
you know, who are nurturing anti-establishment parties will be watching to see how the Brexit goes and how the UK actually fares uh, going forward. Yeah, the interesting thing about that is that the real repercussions of the Brexit will only be felt in several years. It's not going to be an immediate impact, which to a certain extent helps uh, these parties that want to hold similar referendums in their country. If we had seen like a massive economic collapse after Brexit, then one could argue that parties like France's National Front would be actually weakened because people would be afraid. But considering that the European economy has proven to be resilient to the immediate impact of Brexit, these parties could actually be successful at promising similar referenda in their own countries. Just to just add, the European economy has been has been very resilient um, after the Brexit and has has largely been unaffected. The UK economy, uh, the the fall in the pound, um, although things are now in flux again with Trump, is is shaking up the currency markets. But the fall in the pound uh, is likely to feed into to, to greater inflation next year. So. It's probably not going to arrive in time uh, to have a huge effect on the French elections, which I think are in a- April, are they, Adriani? Yes, April, the first round, uh, and May, the second round. Exactly. So it's unlikely to feed through in, in time for the, um, for, the, for the French elections. But we may, at some stage, uh, for halfway through next year, perhaps, begin to see some, um, some inflation, some hardship hitting the British economy. So that's clearly a massive concern at the moment, because to some extent, a lot of Europe's concerns are... You know, they surround matters of economic growth. That's really something, you know, important to every member state and also the whole um, the continental bloc as a collective. What do you think we're going to see going into next year? Because as you mentioned, there are some major elections coming up in big economic players in Europe, but also there's a lot of smaller countries that, that could bear the brunt of any, you know, uh, European downturn in economic fortunes. What do you think we're going to see through 2017 and possibly for the years ahead? I think um, there's two aspects to bear in mind. Um, I mean, the, the first thing is uh, is the banking system, which we've seen problems in um, over the last year in Italy, particularly at the start and, and in the middle of the year. And those problems definitely aren't sorted. Um, but also Deutsche Bank is, is, has obviously made headlines this year. I mean, with a bit of a scare, largely off the back of a, of a Department of Justice fine, but still, it was it was demonstrative of, of, of underlying weaknesses in the in the German banking sector as a whole. I think a lot of that weakness comes from extra low interest rates, negative interest rates, which is which is something which we've seen in Europe, Europe uh, for the last couple of years in Japan as well this year. That plays into that question plays into a, a wider theme, which is gathering steam at the moment, which is um, that we are seeing on a, on a global scale, we are seeing signs that um, inflation is returning to various parts of, of the world. So we've seen uh, producer price uh, inflation has grown in China in, in September. Uh, we're also seeing signs that it's coming back to the US as well. And, and um, we've seen a large bond market seller. Um, and also in the US, we've got uh, we've got Donald Trump arriving with his policies, which which look very inflationary. So in various places and various ways, the, and the bond sell off has affected Europe as well as as, uh, as well as Japan. But in various places, in various ways, the low inflation environment, which has shaped an awful lot of the European Central Bank policy um, over the last uh, two to three years, particularly, looks like it may be shifting and um, the the higher commodity prices may come into European prices as well. What that means is we may get a switch around and everything's political when it comes to Europe and when it comes to uh, common policies, but monetary policy is particularly dangerous um, for, for political reasons. And if we get a higher inflation situation, then first of all, that may 
inspire or allow the European Central Bank to raise its interest rates a bit, which may help that, that banking system, which has struggled with profitability um, over the last couple of years. So that will help. But the other aspect, which is um, about to become uh, very political either way, is the um, quantitative easing program, which uh, expires on, on the current deadline is March next year. And so they need to, probably on December the 8th, which is their next meeting, they need to start making decisions about whether they're going to extend it, which they most likely will, and how much they're going to extend it. Now, the importance of QE is um, it was a policy which was brought in in order to try and raise inflation. So if inflation arrives, then it's not needed so much. It was also a policy which was uh, highly unpopular with Germany, um, which is which is Europe's uh, largest player, because it is seen as subsidizing the debt of the, um, of the Mediterranean countries like Italy and, and Spain. And it has been subsidizing their debt for, for, for the last two or three years. It, it, uh, for the last two years, it's, it, it has kept these bond yields low and it has meant that they don't need to pay much on their debt, which in Italy's case is still absolutely massive. So if you do get inflation rising and if you do get the pressure, the economic case becoming less clear on the European Central Bank to keep going with its quantitative easing program, then the danger is that, particularly in election year in Germany, this has potential to be uh, very deeply politicised and deeply sensitive. But pressure may be put on the ECB to start tapering its QE programme. And what that would do is it would drive up the bond yields of countries like Italy, which haven't been seeing a huge amount of economic growth, are still very fragile, still have a lot of non-performing assets on their on their banks' books, and are, are still extremely fragile. So one of the economic stories of 2017 is, is if the return of inflation happens, then what does that mean for QE? And uh, either you get a lot of uh, a very upset Germany in an election year, or you get rising bond yields in Italy, which uh, is uh, very problematic for the Italian budget. Well, 2016 has been a year of significant upheaval, and it really sets the stage for a potentially even more tumultuous 2017, politically, economically, and in terms of security too. Um, Adriano, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today on the Stratford Talks podcast. Thank you. Thanks very much. Now we'd like to turn to Japan and a conversation between Stratfor Vice President of Global Analysis, Riva Gujon, and our Vice President of Strategic Analysis, Roger Baker, about how demographics can help determine a nation's economic success. Hello, my name is Riva Gujon, and today I'm joined by Roger Baker to discuss a very big concept on how demographics impact economic development with Japan as a very key case study. The entire world is so fixated, right, on what is the Fed going to do? It's easy to obsess over these things in the here and now. And central bankers are trying to figure out all kinds of innovative ways now to artificially stimulate growth. But we keep hitting walls. There's something much stronger, this underlying force, though, that we have to bear in mind as we hit these walls in GDP growth. And that is related to this demographic shift that we see, um, particularly in advanced economies from the United States to Germany to Japan. As we factor in that demographic shift and how it impacts economic growth, and there have been studies now showing that, you know, even in the United States, we've seen um, a lag in, in labor productivity as being a big consequence of a grain society. You know, this is something that we should be factoring in a little bit more when we're talking about 
ways to raise GDP growth? Is 2% growth something to celebrate? Can we even go beyond that? Or do we need to think about it differently? So I think there's two things that intersect here. One is the big question of demographics. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very different world. Um, The industrialized societies are very different than old agrarian societies. Uh, birth rates are much lower. Social mores are changing so that marriage doesn't happen as early if it happens at all. Uh, so all of these have impacted the way in which we look at society and look at birth rates, things of that sort. Mm-hmm. The second piece is the structure of economics. So again, economies are not necessarily based on making physical things and selling the physical things. There's a lot in economies that are based on creating ideas or that don't necessarily have a direct physical output, or that the links in the chain are so spread geographically around the world that it's hard to define where the economic activity is even taking place. When you take these two together, it raises questions about whether GDP as it exists is even the right set of statistics to be looking at, um, how that needs to be adjusted. And also, as you look at economic modeling, which is used to to build these predictions, you're looking at an economic modeling that's largely based on the concept that you're always going to have an increasing labor force. Mm -hmm. And the reality is in the Northern Hemisphere that we're seeing decreasing labor forces or stagnant labor forces. And that's requiring us to rethink the entire structure of economic modeling. And in looking at, you know, a world where maybe labor pools and the size of the labor pools may matter less and looking more at innovation and ideas and how do you actually measure that in net national wealth? Japan is an interesting case study. They're at 1.4 total fertility rate, but um, there are other countries that are actually even worse off than that when we look at the numbers. Korea, for example. Yeah, I mean, if you go right next door to Korea, Korea is running about 1.2. Uh, infertility rate, which means that there are by far not enough children uh, being born. Uh, China's at, I think, around 1.6. So in a country like Korea, which is very small, uh, where you have this uh, lack of population growth, but at the same time, you have an increase in life expectancy, just as we're seeing in Japan, you have these graying societies. And what we're reaching right now in these, these different societies, both in Japan and both in Korea, is this space where there are not enough jobs for the young people. Mm-hmm. There are too many older people that are ultimately going to need to be supported. And there has to be some rethink of the way in which these economies are even going to work. But what makes Korea a bit different from the Japanese case? I mean, it, Japan has this extreme aversion to immigration as a substitute for its labor problems. I don't think that's going to be changing anytime soon. Of course, there are some small exceptions here and there, but you know, this is something that's part of the Japanese national character. Um, something that I discussed earlier is even just you know you could see profiles of a lot of um, Brazilian Japanese. You know, where the largest Japanese diaspora in Brazil, who back in the 90s went to Japan to find work and went back. They just were not socially accepted in Japanese culture overall and in corporate culture. So if we can't see that shift in Japan, um, it, does Korea present a slightly different case? So Korea is a little bit different. Korea traditionally was averse to immigration as well. Um, it's a very small population. Uh, they were very concerned about diluting the population or, or losing the national character. But we've seen a shift, particularly in the past five or 10 years in Korea, that's become much more open to integration, much more open to multiculturalism that's giving them a little bit more space um, and, and allowing not only just 
immigrant labor at the very low end, which traditionally the Koreans were perfectly willing to bring in uh, immigrant labor for the dirty and dangerous jobs. And primarily from Southeast Asia? Uh, well, primarily actually from South Asia and Southeast mm -hmm. Asia. Uh, but now we see an expansion of the sort of acceptance of immigration, of, of uh, mixed marriages, things of that sort, that may allow a little bit of change in Korea. It's still not easy. It's mm -hmm. still not simple to come in and integrate into society, but they seem to be more willing. Whereas Japan, uh, you know, was the leader in, say, the export of industry rather than the import of labor. Mm -hmm. And certainly in both countries, though, technology seems to be uh, a big factor. And so within Japan, we have to remember that this is a long process for reform. And reform is definitely needed to confront some very big challenges when we look at just sort of the structural impediments in Japanese corporate culture when it comes to, you know, the inability of corporations to fire workers, um, you know, when you have a, a system based on seniority as opposed to merit, when you have lower female labor participation, things like that. Um, there's a lot to do here. And there's a lot of expectation on Abe to get it all done right now. But this preceded Abe when we talk about this reform path. Yeah, it certainly did. I mean, if you think about Japan, the the sort of unwritten social contract between the government industry and the citizens allowed Japan to go through this 20-year malaise with relatively little disruption internally in, in the way in which society acted. At the same time, you did see, particularly under Koizumi, for example, the former prime minister, an attempt to start to break that system. Uh, Koizumi actively worked to break the LDP, to break the bureaucracy, to break the connections between industry and the government, not not entirely, but certainly to start to fracture these to allow more flexibility. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's somewhat interesting that at the end of his term, when he did manage to serve a full term, which was unusual, certainly at the time for the Japanese prime ministers, um, Abe came in and started to reverse some of what Koizumi had done. Now we see in Abe's uh, second time as prime minister, he's actually following along with some of these paths that Koizumi had uh, tried to pursue. So he needed to, in a sense, build up some of the political capital in order to get to some of these harder issues? Uh, or he recognized that something really had to be done. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there's still a long way to go here. And, you know, I think one of the frustrations that we have is, especially in the West, there's this tendency to look at Japan and its challenges and put it all in this very sort of doom and gloom light that, you know, Japan just basically has everything going south for them. They've had two decades of near zero growth, essentially. Um, how are they going to break out of this? Abenomics is flopping, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot to Japan that makes it incredibly unique when it comes to its ability to respond under pressure um, in relatively short amounts of time, its ability to still innovate its way out of problems. Um, so, you know, I think Japan is definitely going to be a case study, not necessarily the template for the rest of the grain world, um, but certainly when it comes to how it adapts technology to address some of these challenges, um, and how to think of this sort of post-labor um, economy and looking as GDP as one of many variables in measuring total economic wealth. So certainly there's a lot to learn from Japan. There really is. Again, Japan has been one of these places that we've watched that's that's led in this integration of technology, that's led in the export of industry. Um, and traditionally, Japan uh, has been referred to effectively as an earthquake society. Mm -hmm. It's a country that can make very rapid changes in a very short amount of time, but only after a lot of stress builds up. 
And it's going to be very important to be watching how Japan changes and evolves in this and how that changes the way other countries actually look at these in, uh, industrial and demographic issues. Well, thank you, Roger, for your perspective on this very important issue. And thank you all for joining. That concludes this episode of Stratfor Talks. If you'd like to learn more about the latest political and economic developments in Europe, or more importantly, what's coming next, we'll include links to additional Stratfor analysis in the show notes. We'd also like to hear from you. If you have a question or a comment about the show, or a topic for a future episode of the podcast, let us know. You can reach Stratfor Talks at 1-512-744-4300, extension 3917. You can also email us at podcast at stratfor.com. And as always, we'd appreciate it if you could take the time to leave a review of the Stratfor Talks podcast. For more geopolitical intelligence, analysis and forecasting that reveals the underlying significance and future implications of emerging world events, visit us at stratfor.com. And you can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Stratfor. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>